Hello and welcome to Football Unfocused, a podcast that is so well-renowned and prestigious that my co-presenter, Matthew, five seconds before we started recording, felt the need to remind me what it was called. Football (laughs) Unfocused it is. Matthew is my co-presenter. Matthew, how are you? I'm good. Yeah, yeah, I'm good. I was... um... Yeah, no, that's right. I mean, not that I don't doubt your ability to recall the name of our podcast, but uh, I just want it to be. It's been a couple of weeks since we did it. Are there any anecdotes that you need to, you're dying to tell our, uh, our non-existent listeners or uh, or, or, or uh, have you literally got nothing to report? <laughs> well, now you put it like that. Uh, no, I don't. <laughs> You got you got nothing to say, have you? So uh, if 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 well, I was going to say if you haven't heard this podcast before, but uh, you almost certainly won't have heard this podcast before because uh, we've hardly done the episodes, and uh, as yet we haven't even released one. That that may well be different by the time you listen to this. I hope it is. I hope by then we're the world's leading uh, podcast of any nature, and we've stormed the pod universe. But for now, we are a. Uh, deliberately um sort of how would you describe us uh, unstructured uh, football discussion uh, podcast between two people one of whom myself is you know i think it's fair to say quite into football and my colleague uh, and long-term uh, friend and associate matthew uh, who is possibly not so much into the beautiful game would that be fair yeah. matt yeah no that would be fair but i mean that's, it's, I, I feel it's a great, I mean, that makes for a great dynamic. I mean, this is mm. like a pitch, pitch to a movie type sort of situation. Well, well, I mean, let, let, let's hope the uh, the listening world agrees, man. <laughs> yeah. sure, or, you know, or Hollywood producers, you know. Yeah. Sure. Either, either or, I'll be open yeah. to. Listen to this, it'll blow your socks off. <laughs> um, but yeah, today we were going to... I mean, this was yours. Obviously, all these are all your suggestions that we end up talking about. Um, yeah. But this was one that I didn't quite uh, know too well. Knew even less than I do about the other subjects that we spoke about. <laughs> so it's the Good. viability, the, <laughs> the viability of having ninety-two professional football clubs in the, mm. in the English league. Um, mm. So, firstly, it was sort of. The, the 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 finance model for professional foot clubs doesn't seem like a sustainable um you know way of running a business if you deem a, a football club to be a business um and i and i i sort of have that in that scene in my head when uh, those two guys uh, take over sunderland in sunderland till i die and one of them one of the guys was talking giving a Given a presentation to this to the employees and was basically saying, look, you know, he was obviously he said it in such a horrible way, but probably what he was saying was fair enough, which was basically like Sunderland lose a shitload of money every year, and at the end of the year we just go to the, you know, the owners and say, right, give us this amount of money to to bail us out, and uh, and he was like, we need to just change that entire model. We need to be self sufficient and making money. Um, so yeah, that that was my sort of take on it. And, um, and may I say, Matthew, it, 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 that was a groundbreaking take as well. As takes go, that was, <laughs> yeah, that was yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, 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 pretty revolutionary. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So your conclusion when looking at the viability of ninety-two professional clubs is, of course, Sunderland are very well run. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. yeah. Well, that is actually quite an interesting example to risk going off on a slight tangent. So do rein me back in. But I think there is a link between that Sutherland program and the overall subjects uh, that we're ostensibly discussing here. No, it's because that that presentation that was that guy Charlie Mepham, is that his name? Oh Something yeah, like yeah, that. Charlie Mepham. That's like... <laughs> yeah. who I think was probably um, derided and disliked by I, I'd say quite a decent chunk of the people listening to uh, sorry watching that documentary as this kind of um, slightly brash, flashy, cocksure southerner with his slick back hair. He's gone back in there and tried to sort of, you know, instill and force these harsh corporate values on what appeared to be still, despite the size of Sunderland as an institution, quite a kind of family run environment. And it was a kind of clash of those cultures. And I guess some of that really goes back to what is the purpose of a football club. And uh, you talk about the unsustainable model, financial model, and that is true. And that's why this, this is an, subject worthy of discussion because i'm pretty sure that uh, i'm right in saying that, that the nine the four professional leagues that we have fully professional leagues that we have in this country is more than any of the other major european football uh, powers have uh, most um established football nations will have a top division and a second division that are fully professional and then it will break into sort of regional divisions once you go into tiers three four and below whereas we've got four fully national leagues so that means that if you're um in the fourth tier and you're a club like exeter city who are kind of <coughs> geographically um shall we say a little bit sort of shut away from a lot of the UK because they're right down in the far southwest and then you could have to play a an away game on a Wednesday night against Barrow in Furness which is about as far away in the north as you possibly could and that obviously has logistical issues as financial uh, implications etc and it's you know that would be fine if those two clubs were sort of multi-million pound Premier League um, clubs who could uh, charter planes, etc., etc. <clears throat> but I guess you have to go back to why there are 92, why there, why there are so many clubs in the first place. And I think a lot of it boils down to the, the way in which these clubs were formed and why they were formed coming out of the Victorian era in which, you know, you had mass industrialization at the same time as a real focus on the local. So, the, the sort of you know the Victorian social model of creating a an industry and then around that houses so you had like you know accommodation for the workers most rows of terraced houses in any part of the country were originally built to house workers for a specific industry um, and around that then you know was it they said people need bread and circuses to survive so you would create um, th things for people to do with their leisure time things that were going to entertain people and they because of the you know the transport limitations of the time it was difficult for people to go you know travel widely so most of the things they did would have been within a walk of their front door and as a result you have football clubs formed in quite what look now quite kind of niche um small environments you know i think we said a few episodes ago that if you were going to start football again especially if you went down the kind of you know the american model of that kind of franchise where you kind of 
a city or a town bids for a sporting institution and, and then puts together a kind of business case to sustain it in that particular environment, that would certainly be, I, you, most cities in the UK would end up with one football club um, and possibly somewhere the size of London, maybe two. But that would be it. But instead, you've got even medium-sized cities in this country. The majority of them have got two football clubs. I can only really think of Newcastle and Leeds as uh, and Cardiff. Well, Cardiff, despite being a capital, isn't actually that big. But as really like big cities that have only got one club, most of them have two or three, and London's got about ten or twelve. Um, and I think that that is a reflection of that kind of localized. Um, outlook at that time and that's why you've got you look at some of the names of clubs you know Everton a small region you know a small district in Liverpool Aston Villa you know Aston is just a you know a, a, a stop on a you know on a sort of Birmingham commuter belt you wouldn't get that if you started football again that would, they would the club would just be known as Birmingham as you know obviously there is a Birmingham city and um and that, that, the reason I guess that that's quite interesting is because the fact that those clubs have that model has lasted this long, sort of, you know, 130, 140 years later, is testament to, I think, A, the passion and, and ongoing enthusiasm for football in this country. Um, and also that kind of, you know, the, the, the dedication of the only, you know, you only, the fact you only need really three or four thousand dedicated people who are prepared to week after week, no matter how poor the quality is, put their hands in their pockets and leave the front door and go and stand on a, or sit on a terrace and support that club. And I think there's something really quite beautiful about that. And I think that in, in and that, that's why I th- I personally think it's worth protecting because I think in an era in which everything seems, you know, is so focused on the, the top level of football, the, the glitz and the glamour of the top Premier League games and the Champions League and the big international tournaments, that the connection is really important to get people into football in the first place. So much of that can be engendered from an, of building that relationship with your, lo- you know, a local small club. And, you know, particularly now, I, you know, if I think about um, if I were to, where I live now, if I were to have children despite the fact that i've been going to pretty much every liverpool game since the late late 1990s i would struggle um to get additional tickets to take a you know a son or a daughter along with me so if they if they you know got themselves into football and showed an appetite to watch live football the likelihood is i'd be able to take them to Leighton orient uh, you know a mile up the road and they get to see some uh, league one football and if that or league two football if that um clubs cease to exist then where do where do you know kids just getting into the game where do they go and see uh and and it's not just i'm i'm you know i don't want it to come across as these clubs are just there as a sort of breeding ground until you can get tickets for something better because it can be a lifelong uh devotion you know and and that's i think that's absolutely fantastic and i and I, i do actually fear that that is is in danger of slipping away because I think the the sort of you know globalized world in which we live in now, that idea of of sort of localism has been lost to a large extent, and um, it's just interesting the impact that could have. But whether also trying to be open minded about it, whether 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 it would actually matter. Mm. I mean, it was <clears throat> yeah. I mean, I mean, it was interesting. Sort of obviously, this topic is 
you know, come to the fore um, combination, as you said, talking about, you know, globalization, but with the pandemic and, and, and clubs, you know, a couple of clubs going under. So I was um, Macclesfield town last October and then Berry in November. But it was interesting. They had the fans. Berry was the year before. Berry was uh, August oh, 2019. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, right. But it was as you. But it was interesting that um, they they you know it, they felt it was the way that, that the clubs were being run that 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 they resented. I mean, with Berry, they they set up another club, didn't they? It's, yeah. That that that's become um, quite a tried and trusted model now. Club, yeah. Run, club runs into difficulty. Club goes bust, fans take ownership of club and create a kind of Phoenix club that then has to kind of start at the bottom and work its way back. And there are some real success stories in that. Clubs that are now established back in the the main four divisions of the professional football league who had to go, you know, completely bust and start again in order to do so. Wimbledon being the ultimate example. Wimbledon are an example that are not representative of any other uh, a club that you can think of because they they essentially got moved. I mean, it's still to this day hugely controversial that you know that they were the the football association in this country allowed clubs owners to facilitate a move completely away from the neighbourhood that that club was uh, sort of created and built in and, su- and succeeded in. I understand that there were. Um, massive issues with them not being able to get their own ground. They've moved out of play alone. They've been ground sharing with Crystal Palace for a number of years. But to actually allow them to relocate, what's it, about 100-odd miles, 150-odd miles away in, in um, Milton Keynes is madness. To, I mean, it's difficult to even know where to start with that, really, because, you know, why why were they allowed to rename themselves, relocate and then stay in the division that, that they were in? They were essentially creating a new club, so they should have been made to say, Okay, fine, you can do that, but you have to start from the very bottom. You your position in this league is no longer legitimate. And it really just goes against everything that supposedly is good about football culture and the connection with the people in this country and it's it's the complete opposite of that because what you've got is a, a businessman taking over a club seeing an opportunity to relocate thinking what's the fastest growing city in europe in terms of population oh it's milton Keynes. you know it was a purpose-built place Every, all the infrastructure is there there's a stadium site there you've got a people with no football club nearby so they'll come along and support this team We'll have much more commercial opportunity if we remove it from Wimbledon, where no one's particularly interested anymore, and they're playing in uh, South East London anyway. They don't even have their own ground, so let's just move them without any thought to the people who built their lives around supporting that club and had done for generations, and the history and the culture of that club. It's madness, and it's and it's wonderful to see. I think any most in, you know impartial observers. Um, of that situation have taken great joy in seeing the success of AFC Wimbledon, the rebuilt club, and the fact they're now in the same division as, as MK Dons. And uh, I always, you know, when they play each other, MK Dons annoyingly have got a depressing habit of winning those games when they play each other. But um, but it's a massive grudge match. But you've got other clubs who have kind of disappeared from, you know, when I think about in the, you know, the time that I've been following football and go back to, Clubs that were in the league, like uh, Maidstone United and Newport County, Merthyr Tidville, Rushton and Diamonds, uh, Kidderminster, 
all the, you know, quite a few of those clubs, Aldershot, quite a few of those clubs went completely bust and had to start again. And, uh, and the, the kind of fan ownership model seems to be the road that, that, that people go down in order to get those clubs, you know, back to a viable um, state. And that's, that's, that's fantastic. I guess it's not really been tested as to how far you can take that, that, um, the, the sort of, you know, the, the democracy of all stakeholders in there having a vote on how the club is run and having that genuine kind of ownership, whether there'd be limitations, you know, once you go up the chain, whether that, you know, whether football basically now and success in football is reliant upon a rich benefactor or, you know, um, you know, big sort of commercial um, success because, the problems that are co- caused by so many of these clubs in the first place, it's not even necessarily about the lack of sustainability. It's just poor ownership. So some of the, you know, awful um, individuals who have been allowed to, with no connection to some of these clubs, who have been allowed to take them over as and sort of asset strip them. And then just things gradually fall apart. Wages stop being paid. Ground falls into disrepair, et cetera, et cetera. Results start to tumble. And then before you know it, you know, Berry, who are one of the I think the oldest football clubs in the country, proud history, FA Cup winners, etc., gone. You know, just gone. It's just that I mean it's absolutely outrageous. You know, there's a community built around that that football club. Um and it's the same to a to a lesser extent with uh, even though they're a smaller club, but Macclesfield Town as well, just gone. And you know, they'd that was a really long, slow, ignominious goodbye. They'd over the over the previous year the players had not been paid for long periods of time and uh, all sorts of shenanigans have been going on. And there's, there's always, when you can trace all of these back, there's always an unscrupulous owner who, um, who whose kind of motives in buying the club in the first place are questionable at best. And they just all seem to sort of follow the same pattern. And a lot of people have a go, there's a thing called, a, it used to be called the fit and, per, fit and proper persons test. It's now just called the owners and directors <laughs> test, I think, which the FA, um, which the FA supposedly implement before anyone buys a club. But to be fair to them, it is, I, I think, you know, that's, it's an easy stick to beat them with and say they're not scrutinizing who's buying these clubs. And as a result, the clubs are falling into the wrong hands and then they're being destroyed. But I think there is a limit, you know, kind of, you know, in an, open market that there is a there is a limit to which the fa can control who owns the clubs and and when you actually uh, look into that that test that they use to um analyze the suitability of potential uh, buyers it, it's it, I, it, the details are relatively basic so you can you you can slip through and i don't think they've got the power to make that um you know to, to add lay, layers of scrutiny um, to that process so it's not really their fault i don't know enough about the governments of and how how what the dynamics are there to know whether they could be given kind of you know some sharper teeth in that respect but what i do know is that some really diabolical people have been allowed to run um some formerly great football clubs over the last uh, you know couple of decades and it has even something like portsmouth portsmouth went from um, winning the FA Cup and, you know, um, back-to-back top half Premier League finishes. That was only 2008 they won the FA Cup. And then, you know, a couple of years ago, they've only just not long come out of the bottom division. They're now 
sort of pushing for promotion out of League One. And there was one season, I think in particular, where they had four different owners. Owners. You hear sometimes uh, four different managers in the season, but four different owners. And all of them were just, you know, um, uh, parasites, basically. They were sort of opportunistic asset strippers who were just coming along and buying. And as a result of that, then the people who, when the when the inevitable bankruptcy comes along, an administration, who ends up out of pocket really? It's the it's the people who have been providing the medical services, Sir John's ambulance and stuff for the game. It's the caterers, you know. It's the stewards. These are the people who are really out of pocket. These um, and obviously the the ultimate losers are always the fans because they're the ones that will continue to go no matter what. You know, you know, they're the real stakeholders. But despite all of these problems, the fundamental issue is that, well, not issue, I I think it's a real great thing about football in this country is that, you know, there, there are amazingly, in fact, there are more than 92 professional clubs because around 50% of the National League Premier in old money, the GM Vauxhall Conference, um, I, st- I still call it that, uh, that, that are former football league clubs and have still got that professional mo- model. So it's, it's pretty rare that a club gets relegated into the National League and just tears up its professional status and makes all its players go part-time. The majority of them will stay professional. So at least half, probably three-quarters of that, that division is also professional. So it's it's p- probably more like, uh, say, 110, 112, um, uh, maybe even up to 120 professional uh, clubs in this country, which is pretty incredible you know and you look at this where the income come comes from you know it's 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 pretty much gate receipts gate receipts gate receipts i mean they can depending on the facilities that they've got they can make money from hiring out their pitches and um hiring out you know their their resources in terms of you know for if they've got sort of banqueting suites and stuff for you know private events conferences weddings whatever um but the majority of them are just reliant on people turning up and paying their, you know, 10, 15 quid and going in and watching some god-awful, poor-quality football. And, <laughs> um, I mean, do you think, would you say any responsibility where fans' expectations... Um, so I guess I was thinking um, of, like, Arsene Wenger, who was quite a prudent type yeah. of um, manager... And uh, he obviously, you know, was sort of one of the longest running managers to get top four place in the Premier League for however many consecutive years. Um, and he was he was sort of, he obviously was very popular by the time he left. Uh, they, you know, there was quite a large movement to, to sort of get him out. Um, where, where sort of, you know, responsible financial management of football clubs possibly isn't quite, you know, people that isn't going to get their juices flowing. And so, no, know, but then, we, you know, but, you know but I think it's situation where it becomes a bit of an arms race. Yeah, 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 absolutely. It's probably unfair because, and I'm as guilty as it, of, it, of it as anyone else. I'll, I'll sort of look at some of the criticism that Arsene Wenger got and the way in which, you know, quite a big chunk of the Arsenal fans behaved towards him considering the success he'd brought in the first uh, half of his Arsenal uh, tenure. And you kind of think, oh, it's, it's, it's disgraceful. But then why why do people go to football? You know, the old sort of traditional model of you, you work 
a lot of the time in a job that you might not be that mad about Monday to Friday. That's the bit where you do the things that you kind of have to do. Football's your release. Football's your dream. That's your opportunity to to sort of you know dream and to lose yourself in that in that that world. So the idea of being kind of rational and sensible about about football is probably it's probably a bit of a stretch to expect that of people. And yes, you know Arsene Wenger is a rare, uh, almost unique example of a manager who was as concentrated and passionate about the sustainable business side of his own club. And he and he almost he almost had an approach whereby he was you know, spending money at Arsenal. He treated it like it was coming out of his own pocket. And that made him a, um, a an extraordinarily responsible custodian of that. I mean, it was, it was almost like he was like club president. But then, of course, you know, so... I always feel really sorry for him, actually, because when you look, he takes over in, what, late 1996. And between there and 2004, he wins three league titles, two of which are, you know, double, uh, double wins. Um, The final league title, his team go unbeaten the whole season. He also wins about four or five FA Cups during that period of time. So it's unbelievable. And they're competing against a very, very strong um, um, team of Alex Ferguson, who at that time were, were you know, winning the 1999 treble and all that sort of stuff. So he's, re- you know, to win the league at that time was a real tall order, and he's done so with um, astute purchases and, uh, you know, reinvigorating veteran players like um, Tony Adams and Steve Bold, Lee Dixon, Nigel Winterburn, etc. Just really transforming and professionalising the club and making them focused on sort of diet, nutrition, preparation, etc. And his reputation couldn't have been higher. And then, you know, they the club make the decision to relocate from Highbury, go up the road, build this massive, expensive new stadium. And but alongside that, there's this acceptance that there will be need to be a period of financial prudence to cover the cost of the stadium to try and pay down the debt as quickly as possible. So they end up becoming a selling club for quite a few years. You know, look at Man City. When Man City first get their money, so many of their big signings, they were, bu- they were buying everyone from, from Arsenal. You know, Sami Nasri, um, Dale Clichy, Emmanuel Adebayor. Um, and then obviously Fabregas goes to uh, Barcelona. And that, you know, the, 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 that... <laughs> The strength and the dynamism of that Arsenal team over that period of time is just completely stripped away. And then they become, it was almost like a complete identity change. They become such a soft touch, kind of a bit of a nearly club, always nice to watch, but you knew that they were never going to really have that the, the sort of cutting edge and the, the discipline and the, the ability to finish off a season. So they'd pick up the odd cup here and there. But essentially from 2006 up until, when did he, Stepped down, I was saying it was 2018 or 19, wasn't it? 19, I think. Um, you know, so you've got really like 13 years. There. So it's actually longer in that period of eh, than there was in, in, in terms of yeah, the period yeah. of dominance. But so much of that is, is down to him doing things and implementing things that were in the long term interests of the club that no other manager can imagine Jose Mourinho behaving like that. A man's <laughs> so, so driven by, uh, Eager egotism that can you imagine him, you know, accept, accepting a situation where, okay, for the next five years, you're probably going to have to focus more on balancing the books and try and get as, try and get the results as high as possible. Keep 
And bear in mind, all this time, Wenger was finishing in the top four, like you said before. Mm. It was only, I think, the last season they failed, last two seasons maybe they failed to do so. But they were always a Champions League team, even no matter who they were having to flog. Um, I mean, it, it, it's, it's amazing when to look back and think that Arsene Wenger did that. That's how much he, that's his dedication, his responsibility, and his love for the club. Um, and I think in the fullness of time, even the people who were really getting on his back the last three or four years will, will appreciate what he did. But passions run high and it's difficult yeah, yeah, yeah. for people, you know, people... To rationalise um, them, uh, yeah. Yeah, mate, we're irrational, you know. People are irrational. I mean, obviously I'm not. I'm a model football fan, you know. When I'm watching my... <laughs> When I'm watching you're you're my, cheering my... on the opposition just as much as your own Good team goal. sometimes. I mean, uh, yeah, yeah. You're watching, <laughs> watching Liverpool's shambolic, embarrassing defence of the Premier League title. Probably the most pathetic attempt at uh, defending a title in the last, uh, I don't know. Actually, no, this gets over you. It isn't the worst in the last sort of, you know, goodness knows how long. Because Leicester, the year after they won the league, they nearly got relegated the next season. <laughs> They sacked Ranieri about February, March time because they were just outside the bottom three. So they, they could have actually won the league and gone down. I think it's not a, a not dissimilar thing happened when Leeds won the league in 1992 as well. I think they had a shocker. They they went like the whole of the next season without winning an away game or something, something mad like that. So it has happened. It, do, it does happen. But anyway, I digress. Uh, <laughs> I digress. Yeah. <laughs> On that point. Um, so we, we're not going to talk about what we're going to talk about next week. We're, we're just going to... We're just going to try and think about We're going to turn up next week with a subject. No, you can't do that because I need to do some, I need to do, you know, at least the barest. Well, no, you, you'll know, you'll know, but our listeners. Oh, all right. Have yeah, a yeah. Lovely, yeah oh, okay. lovely surprise when they turn it on. But I'll tell you what it won't be about. It won't be about uh, um, the problems of uh, Liverpool Football Club in the twenty. 20 slash 21 season because I'm so sick of talking about that and thinking about that that I just the last thing I want to do is bring that into a, a podcast situation this is pod this is pod therapy Matt <laughs> yeah yeah no, I was gonna say you and me both you know I, I can't yeah. stop thinking about it <laughs> you know what what is Klopp doing <laughs> yeah I bet, I bet it's yeah I bet it's keeping that's keeping you up at night isn't it yeah oh 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 come on. Come on, come on, lads. Come on the Reds. Come yeah, on. come on the Red Men. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well on, on, on that bombshell. Um bye everybody and see you next time.